Thanks, Wes. So if you didn't know, we're in the middle of a building campaign. And it's going to have really nice air conditioners where we go. Actually, we don't call it a building campaign, but the quicker we get there, the better we're, the more we're cool. So, um, all right, so I want to start off today by asking you a question. What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? First thing you do when you get up in the morning. You don't have to tell your neighbor, besides going to the bathroom, all right? <laughs> I can say with almost certainty, you check the clock. Even on a Saturday, we don't have anywhere to be. All right, why do you think that is? This is a rhetorical question. Why do you think that is? Why do we get up every day and check the clock regardless of what we have to do? Even if you have nowhere to go. It's because we're in a hurry. And oddly, it's a, it's a fairly recent phenomenon. Historically, people moved at a much slower pace. In the medieval times, the world primarily farmed, and people would get up when the sun rose. They'd go to bed when the sun went down. They would live by the seasons. Nobody had clocks or super tight schedules. You know, if you think about us today, you know, you'd wake up around, when's the sun get up? 6.45. Bob, you're probably up three hours before the sun comes up, but earlier than that. (laughs) Whenever Bob says the sun gets up is when the sun comes up, and it goes down probably, what, 5.30 nowadays? So that, literally, you'd kind of follow that to a certain extent. Um, First clocks started appearing around the 1300s, and they were usually built in monasteries. And the reason they were in monasteries, it would help the monks keep their schedule. They would know when to go to bed, they would know when to read, they'd know when to say their prayers, they would know when to have their songs and their gatherings. And So you would mostly see, through the medieval times, you would see clocks in monasteries. And then during the 18th century, slowly clocks began to appear in town squares across Europe, across America. But it wasn't until the late 1800s when time would change completely. Time would change completely in the late 1800s. In December of 1879, Thomas Edison invented something the light bulb, and time would never be the same. Up until that point, Americans slept probably around 11 hours a night. Anybody getting 11 hours these days? You probably don't want to raise your hand, but 11 hours a night. By 1910, we were sleeping around nine to nine and a half hours a night, somewhere around there. And today, the average American sleeps between six and seven hours a night, six to seven hours a night. So then you have clocks, you have the light bulb, you have electricity, and these all ushered in a manufacturing era where now time equaled money. That was never really the case before, but now time equaled money. And workers, especially in America, were pushed to the limit. All right, Productivity was king. And clocks began to appear everywhere, in houses, in manufacturing plants, and it was really because workers had no choice but to be on time or else they'd be fired. So all of a sudden, time became this really important thing in our culture. Henry Ford actually dropped the amount of time that people had to work. They were working 9, 10, 11, 12-hour days in the plants. And Henry Ford came along and said, I'm going to make people work eight hours a day. I'm going to pay them an extra dollar an hour, which was a really big deal back then. And you would think, man, what a generous dude. But then really what what happened was he wanted three eight-hour shifts of people working around the clock. So three times eight, 24 hours, and literally that's when you kind of began the overnight shift and time was money. The plant always had to be operating, all right? And then it just kind of began this obsession with our time. And 
you know, here's the funny thing. Most of you today have nowhere to go after this. All right, I don't know your schedules, but I'm going to make a really big assumption. You don't have anything super pressing after this. It's a weekend for a lot of you. You know, maybe you're off, you work during the week, you're off on the weekends. But if I preached an hour today, instead of my normal 59 minutes, <laughs> if I preached an hour today, by probably the 55-minute mark, most of you would be like, you know, you'd start panicking. You'd probably break out in hives. John's already got me on the clock over here looking at his watch. I'm already five minutes in. Thanks, John. Um, now, here's, here's the funny thing. On the one hand, we've become consumed with time. And on the other hand, our lives have gotten a lot easier. Theoretically. All right, as you fast forward through the 20th century, we've had invention after invention after invention, which were designed to make our lives easier and give us more time. Would you agree with that? From the wash machine to the vacuum to the dishwasher, you know, feel like you're maybe in the carousel of progress at Disney World, you know, you kind of see all these things going around. We had cars, we had tractors, things that made people's lives easier and for the most part made us more productive and gave us more time. They were all designed to make your life easier, give you more time. Anybody remember what we did before Google? When you could get your answer like that? It was called the World Book Encyclopedia. How's that for some nostalgia for some of you folks? Some of you 20-year-olds are like, what is that? (laughs) Those, that was Google back in the day. All right, if you were sitting around the dinner table and you're like, ask your mom or dad this random question about something like maybe a giraffe or something weird, all right, they would say, I don't know, why don't you go look it up? And so you'd scurry off from the dinner table, you'd run over to wherever in your house you kept the World Book Encyclopedia set, and you'd go find the G, and then you'd pull it out, and you'd spend the next 10 minutes trying to find the section on the giraffe, and you'd, you know, figure out what it is. Am I the only one that had to do that? Okay, I'm not the only one good, good to know. Um, Then the 90s come into town, and you've got computers, Now you've got a library, literally a library of information at everyone's fingertips on a laptop. I mean, the the amount of information you have available to you at your fingertips is crazy. All right, we do everything from research to schoolwork to study for sermons to typing letters that we can send across the world digitally that you can get in the blink of an eye, which is crazy. Can you imagine actually having to handwrite a letter to somebody? I'm serious. I don't even know if I can still do that. I don't even know if I can still write in cursive because I haven't, I'm I'm being serious though. You haven't done it in so long. Like times have changed. I remember as a kid, I got this typewriter from my granddad. I don't even know where he got it, but I got this typewriter and it had had like its little latch on it. You literally carry it around. It had no electric. It would just, you know, you could do this. And I remember typing my granddad a letter like at 10 and I got like probably three quarters of the way down the letter and I messed up. I don't know why at 10 I thought that was a big deal, but I messed up. I don't know why I thought my granddad would care either, but I ripped, you know, ripped it out, ripped up, the, ripped up the, the letter and started over. And at 10, it probably took me an entire day to type a paragraph on a typewriter. I mean, now we have Microsoft Word, which corrects my spelling and gives me synonyms. <laughs> All right? It's a big deal. Your spelling is horrible, just like mine. If we didn't have autocorrect and that kind of stuff. I can only imagine what we would be typing. And then when I'm done, I hit print. And on my very own printing press in my house, I have that letter that comes out that I can then send. 
I mean, if you think about what we have, it's pretty amazing. The things we have that save us time. It's pretty amazing. Don't even get me started on cell phones. You know, we have libraries on them. We have cameras on them. Communication is much easier. You can call and tell people to get you mail. Call, you know, call family members. You know, there used to be back in the day, you'd run to your neighbor and borrow something. You know, that doesn't happen as much anymore. You just text somebody, hey, bring me, bring me something home. And they were all designed to give us free time and more importantly, to give us rest. So what in the world happened? Where did all of our time go? And more importantly, where did all of our rest go? Where, where did, where do, I mean, we still have 24 hours in a day. We have the same 24 hours in our day that Jesus had. Where did it all go? We obviously use it very differently. And my fear for us as followers of Christ is that we rush through life. We don't ever stop to look around, to love people, to hug on people's necks, to care for people, and more importantly, to rest in Jesus. Because if you're resting in Jesus, those other things just happen. If you're commuting with him, if you're resting with him, you're loving people, you're caring for people, you're, you know, you're, you're showing the fruit of the Spirit. And my fear is, is that that won't happen. And this is just right up front, I'll tell you right up front. I asked Kerry why it was so hot in here between services, and he said, that's because your sermon was pretty hot. It's kind of fiery. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. So I'm going to warn you up front, it's blunt. It's very blunt, but I'll also tell you up front that it's for me. I don't rest well. Like, I can't speak for you, but I, I don't rest well. And the sad reality, even my time with Jesus, is clocked and hurried. Have to get it done by a certain time so I can get on to this next thing. Even on a Saturday when I've got nothing else to do, I have to get on to here and then have to get on to here and have to do this. And that's, that's, that's no way to live. All right, the last few weeks, Jake's been walking through Psalms. He walked through Psalms 42 and 43 two weeks ago, and then Psalm 116 last week. And it's been a really encouraging study for me. And there's been a couple verses that have stood out. Um, one of them, I have them up here, but Psalm 42 and 1 and 2, it says, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, the living God. Right? Then a few verses later we read, Why are you cast down? I'm in verse 5, Psalm 42, 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep. Jake really talked about this phrase, and I, that phrase has resonated with me. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I think what's, what struck me most the last few weeks is this idea of our souls being in turmoil. Like our souls battling, the spiritual battle that often goes on inside of us. Do me a favor, open to Matthew chapter 11. This morning I want to continue talking about soul and rest, but I want to hit it, this is something we don't normally do, but I want to hit it just from an extremely practical standpoint. We usually walk through books of the Bible, we just wrapped up John, as you know we're going to kick off an Old Testament book sometime in the spring, actually January, 
Um, but we took four weeks off just for Christmas. A lot of people transitioning, traveling, stuff like that. And we just wanted to hit some very particular passages. So today, like I said, we're going to continue talking about the soul. We're going to talk about rest, but it's going to be very, hopefully very practical. Like how does your soul rest in Jesus? How do you attain rest in Jesus? And I love these verses in Matthew 11 because for me, when I read them, it's almost like a continuation of Psalm 42 or Psalm 43 or Psalm 116, the the Psalms that we've covered the last few weeks. It's like a deeper explanation, if you will, of what the psalmist was referring to. Listen to what Jesus says. You've heard these verses, but listen to them like it's the first time. Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Rest for your souls. All right, I'm normally not a huge fan of the message translation of the Bible. I like word for word translations, but the way the message lays this, these same verses out is, it just, I mean, it just really speaks to you. It says, are you tired? Worn out? burned out on religion, come to me. Get away with me and you recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I love that phrase. All right, I think it's weird sometimes to title your sermons like just, it's just John 11 or John 12. You don't need to come up with a fancy little name title, name sermons. But if I did... This would be the name of this sermon, if I did. Unforced Rhythms of Grace. Unforced Rhythms of Grace. I think it's just a great phrase. All right, he says, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Think about your life right now, today. This week, this month, this year, 2018 as a whole. We're coming to the end of 2018. Think about 2018. Would you consider it free and light? Would those be synonyms you would use if you were using Microsoft Word for your life this year? Free and light. If I asked you for one word to describe your life right now, what would it be? One word. Peaceful? Content? Relaxed? Restful? What if I asked the people who know you best and asked them to give me one word that describes your life? Ray, don't laugh. (laughs) What would they say? Tired? Worn out? Stressed? High strung? Crazy? I'm sure there's lots more that come after that. But here's the deal. We've all been there. Those synonyms could be used to describe every single person in this room. And if they can't be used to describe you, then let's have lunch because I want to know why. All right? Because we've all been there at certain times in our lives where we struggle with things and we're crazy, we're tired, we're stressed, we're worn out. And it's just, that's the way life is. But that's not the way your life should always be. You need to and I need to. We need to learn to rest in Jesus. Do you want that? Do you, do you truly want that? Do you want, because that's a serious question you need to ask before you even figure out if you're going to do it. Do I really want to rest in Jesus? You know, what if it meant altering your lifestyle a little? What if in order to accomplish rest in your life, you had to 
kind of change things up a little? Alter your lifestyle. Would you be willing to do it? The rhythm of your life? What if it meant changing some of your affections, the things you love, the things you love to do, the things you love to pursue? Just, hey, that's really not giving me rest in Jesus. I'm going to switch it over to here. Would you do it? Would you still want to do it? What if it meant slowing down? What if it meant slowing down your life, shifting your schedule in order to give you time to rest in Jesus? Would you do it? And those are, those are, I can't answer that question for you. Those are questions for you and you alone. And I believe in these verses, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Jesus is beckoning us to slow down. He's beckoning us to live an unhurried life. If you look at Jesus' life throughout the New Testament and you had to describe him with one word, there's, there's probably a lot of words, passionate, driven, focused, but he was also relaxed. Would you agree? He was relaxed. You said, Jesus says, they come and get him in John 11, and they said, Jesus, we need you. You need to come over here. Lazarus has died. And he waits two days. Oh, here, come heal my son. Come heal my daughter. Come do this. Come do this. Wait a minute. I got to talk to these people over here. Like Jesus' timetable is always much different than our timetable. He lives a very focused, what I think is relaxed. It might not be the best word to use, but what I think is a relaxed life. And sometimes we are so hurried, we don't give ourselves any time to actually slow down and do the same. Where we're focused on the people around us. And this verse is like an invitation. You know, the interesting thing is most of us, we read Matthew eleven twenty eight. we've heard it many, many times. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we hear that word rest, and what first comes to mind is when you place your faith in Jesus, there's rest. And we kind of think it's done right there. I've gotten that rest. I'm good. And while there's definitely rest that comes through salvation, no ifs, ands, or buts, there is rest that comes through salvation, it's not the end of the story. It's not the whole story. There's something, there's something deep, deeper. There's something more there. If you keep reading, look at verse 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a great invitation. But verse 29 says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And then what? You will find rest for your souls. Learn from me and you will find rest for your souls. So a yoke, as you've probably heard 50 pastors say before, it's something that looks like this. It's this harness, if you will, that they would put across a donkey or an ox and put it at the top of their necks and would it keep them plowing down the same row in the same direction. That was the goal. You didn't want them to veer off, and if you just kind of had a, them doing their own things, you wouldn't be as productive as you wanted to be. So they made this yoke, which would keep them going in the way that they needed to go. Keep them going the same way. Got a few pictures. Here's one of them. Here's another one. This is, this is when Jesus tells us to take his yoke. I'll let you figure out which of those two animals you are. Um, but Jesus looks at this crowd. He looks at this crowd of people who he's standing here telling this, this, you know, this passage to. And he says, come to me if you're weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And it probably, to them, sounded pretty ridiculous. He's talking to a bunch of farmers. He's talking to a bunch of shepherds. People whose daily routines are exhausting. You think your daily routine is exhausting? Unless you're a farmer or a shepherd. You know, most of us, I mean, 
myself included, uh, you know, I work in the AC, I work in an office, you know, I, I, I don't know the exhausting work of pushing a yoke or helping, you know, pushing these two ox behind a yoke. And these people probably looked at Jesus and they said, um, you want me to rest and you want me to plow with a yoke? Like that's not exactly my idea of rest. I don't want another yoke. I want a nap. I want to chill. I want to, I want to just take a breath. All right. But here's what he's saying to the farmers and here's what he's saying to you. And here's what he's saying to me. Take my yoke, take my teachings, take my way of life, learn from me, and if you do, even your work will be restful. If we're walking in the same direction, even your work will be restful. Slow down, relax, trust me, and the way will be so much lighter. At first, even for us, you know, you think about that and you're like, Okay, that's, it can still be kind of an overwhelming thought. I'm weary, I'm exhausted, I'm worn out, I'm tired, and now you want me to walk next to you. And Jesus, I know what that means. It means I'm going to go to church weekly. If I'm walking with you and I'm going where you're going we're, going, we're going to church weekly, maybe twice a week, maybe every time the church doors are open. I'm praying every day, I'm reading my Bible every day, I'm going to a small group, I'm evangelizing, I'm fellowshipping with other people. I don't need any of that right now. I don't need more work. I don't need more things to do. My schedule is completely full. So putting your yoke on and walking with you does not sound very restful. Would you agree? It doesn't sound very restful at times. I'm at capacity. Listen to what Dallas Willard says. He says, our mistake is to assume that following Jesus consists of loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently, while living the rest of our lives just like everyone else around us. It's a strategy bound to fail. All right, let me let you in on a little secret. The hardest way to follow Jesus is to live like everybody else. The hardest way to follow Jesus is to live like your neighbors, live like your coworkers, live like the people at school, people at the gym, not making any adjustments with your time, not making any adjustments with your schedule, not making any adjustments with your money, and then trying to fit Jesus into the remaining spaces that you have open in your life. All right, I'm a Christian now. All right, I'm going to do this one thing. I need to give Jesus some time. So one hour a week, I'm going to pull this out. I'm going to stop watching Sports Center every morning for an hour. I'm going to put Jesus right in there and give him my one hour. And that's literally what we try to do. We try to fit him into the open spaces that we have remaining. And we already know we don't have many open spaces remaining. We're slammed. We're busy, we're full, life is overwhelming, and we're trying to fit him in. That doesn't usually end well. The easier way to follow Jesus is to learn from him, as the verse says, take his teachings, his example, and alter your life in such a way where he is truly part of your daily routines. Alter your life, alter your schedule where he is a part of your daily routines. It's not fitting him in where he fits. It's changing your life to work around him. It's, not, it's, a, it's a hard adjustment at first. It's a hard thing to do. Your morning is built around him. Let me ask you this. This is where it gets kind of blunt for me. I'm trying to avoid eye contact with my wife over here because she's going to be like, you don't do it. You know? I, mean, I don't do any of this. I'm trying to do this. This is, this is the, the rhythms of grace I'm trying to build into my life right now. I'm trying to get there. But are your mornings built around him? You know what your mornings look like? Are they built around him? Are your evenings built around him? Does he fit in anywhere? 
That's, that's what I talked about earlier when I said, are you willing to change your schedule in order to provide time to rest in him? Do you pause throughout the day to reflect, to ask for wisdom, to ask for guidance at all? I don't. I would like to. I'd like to change my schedule and get to the point where I have, okay, this is, Lord, I just need to stop right here, stop at this point in my day, and just look to you and say, Lord, I need your wisdom and guidance right now. I'm in my job. I know this is where I am. I know this is where you have me. So obviously I need to come to you since this is where you have me and we need to talk this through. Slow down and rest. Tim Keller says, apart from Christ, you will work even when you are resting. With Christ, you can rest even while you are working. Until you learn to rest in Christ, everything we do will be off. Just won't quite connect. The most mature, this is J.D. Greer, the most mature in Jesus are not those working hardest for him, but those resting best in him. Now that's not to say life's going to be all roses. I get that. But the burden of control has been shifted. It's his yoke. It's not your yoke. It's his yoke. He said, take my yoke upon you. He's got the yoke. It's his direction, his control. You're just coming right up alongside of him and saying, let's go. All right, Lord, where are we, where are we headed? Where do you want me to work? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to live? Who do you want me to have relationships with? Who do you want me to share my faith with? Who do you want me? He is in control. He is guiding. He's in control of where you go. He's in control of what job you have. Control of your money. Control of your relationships. Control of your marriage. Obviously, we have a role. We have a responsibility. Some of the onus is on us, but we are trusting him along the way. So you lose your job. It's like, all right, Lord, where are we going next? Now, this is easier said than done. I get that. I'm not standing up here as somebody who says, I got it all figured out. And if you lose your job, life's just going to be great. Thank you, Jesus, for losing my job. This is awesome. That's not the way it works. And we know that. But if you know he is in control and you know he placed you in the job you have, when you lose it, all right, Lord, where are we going? Where are we headed next? No money in the bank? Lord, I've been, I've been trying to help people out. I've been, you know, people who are hurting. I've been, you know, giving money here and giving money here. And I got no money in the bank. But Lord, I know that you asked me to do those things. And I know you're in control. I'm not going to worry about that. Kids get sick. Lord, I do not understand why this has happened. I do not understand why my kid's sick. I hate the fact that my kid is sick. But I know you're in control. I trust you. I'm in your yoke. Lead me. Easier said than done. But that is how we grow in Christ. If I went around to all of you in here and I had conversation with you, for especially those of you who have walked with Jesus for many, 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 many years, if you look back on your life, the places that you grew the most is where you didn't understand where you were going. But Jesus was leading. You're like, why are we headed here? I do not want to go there. I do not want to do this. I do not want to do that. And you knew Jesus was leading and you look back on it. You're like, man, that was such a growing opportunity. I grew so much in that moment because I trusted Christ, even though I didn't know where we were headed. Got all these tasks going on, but I decided to slow down and trust. All right, there's this story in Luke 10 where Mary and Martha are together with Jesus. You've all heard it. But think of it in the light of what we are talking about. Luke 10, 38. While they were traveling, he, talking about Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. I could put my name there. 
Sheol was distracted by his many tasks. Right? Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. Verse 41, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her. One thing is necessary, communion with God. One thing, communion with God. Being in his yoke. So in the time we have left, I want to spend just a few minutes giving you simple ways, practical ways to model your life after Jesus. Ways to find rest. There are plenty more than what I'm going to give you, but just ways to find rest for your soul. They aren't all original with me. I've read lots of of the Bible, read lots of books. I mean, I've just done a lot of study to try to find like what, because this is a journey I'm on for myself. Going in a million directions and I just, I, I need rest. And so this is just part of my own growing process. But the first thing I would say is we need to slow down and refocus our gaze on him. Slow down and refocus your gaze on Jesus. I was driving the other day and Jaden, my son who's five, he was in the back seat. And if if I had a, a dollar for every outrageous thing he's ever said from the back seat while we're driving, I probably would not have a day job right now. I'd just be doing this. But, um, he, he's always full of things to say. But he says, this is what he says. He says, Dad, I got something to tell you. And I was like, okay, what's up, buddy? He said, my brain is always working. And I was like, I don't even know what a brain is. He goes, I, he goes, I am always thinking about something. And I've been sitting here in the back seat trying to turn it off. And I can't. That's what he said. Wisdom from a five-year-old. Okay, and I'm like, if you only knew, kid, does not get any better from here. It's all downhill. But if we're not careful, we can mindlessly analyze and think our way into spiritual oblivion. Would you agree with that? We can just, I mean, he's right. Our minds are always working. They're always somewhere. They're always doing something. That's why meditation in the Old Testament was such a big thing. That's why David meditated on scripture. Because those spiritual disciplines of meditation, they get you thinking about Jesus. They got you, you're just mind where it needs to be. And when Satan throws those thoughts of, I need to do this, I need to go to work, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this. It's like, Jesus, I want to rest in you. Because all these things are going through my mind right now are doing nothing but stressing me out. They're making me anxious. And I'm supposed to cast my cares upon you. I'm not supposed to be anxious about anything. And that's just what Satan is doing to my mind. We need to stop thinking about all the work we have to do unless we're at work. We need to stop working all the time. Don't look at me, Courtney. (laughs) Stop working all the time. That's a note to self. Stop reading endless articles on Facebook. Stop swiping down Instagram just getting in these rabbit holes you don't even know where you are 20 minutes later. All right, we've all been there. Stop thinking about all the people you need to call. Stop checking your emails on your phone. Just stop and be present. Minister to the people that God has placed around you. You might be thinking, well, that's impossible because I don't have enough time for that. So here's the next one. Pick a dip one day a week and rest. Pick one day a week and rest. Recapture the idea of the Sabbath. 
I, I know that's a big deal. I know that some of you are like, okay, well, that's the Old Testament, that's the New Testament. I don't understand what's going on here. It's extremely helpful to your rest in Jesus. One day to focus on him, on your relationships, on the beauty of his creation. Doesn't have to be a Sunday, but one day to stop working and enjoy God and the gifts that he's given you. And I don't mean sit on the couch and binge watch Netflix all day. That's not rest. I mean, literally, no electronics, turn off your phone, celebrate who God is. Celebrate with family. Bring family over, celebrate, have a meal, invite friends over. Here's just a weird concept. Invite friends over, talk about Jesus on your Sabbath day. Like, we're so good about having friends over, but so often we don't talk about Jesus. Talk about sports. I'm, I'm just as guilty. We talk about sports and all the fun things. We'll talk about work. Even we're not at work. Invite friends over, just talk about Jesus. And I realize the Sabbath isn't convenient, but it was never about convenience or ease. It was never about could you do it or could you, do, could, could you not do it. You know that Chick-fil-A loses over a billion dollars a year for being closed on Sundays. Over a billion dollars a year, Chick-fil-A loses for not being open on Sundays. And we can justify all kinds of reasons why they should be open, including I want to go there after church and go eat. And that's, you know, that's always when I want to go there is when they're open or when they're not open. They could give the money to the poor. They should be open and just give all that money to the poor. That would be much more effective. The, the point is, their founder knew it was important to rest. To take a day and rest. In biblical times, it was literally, your survival was literally day to day. It's really not that difficult for most of us to take rest on a day, on a sun, Saturday or Sunday. Most of us have days off, one or two a week. So days off, we're not farmers. So me not going to my office on a Saturday or Sunday is really not a big deal because nobody's even there if I went. So taking a day of rest, but for farmers in the days when this happened, the Old Testament, man, you would, you're getting water was a daily thing. Getting food and picking crops and harvesting was a daily thing. It was something they had to do every day. To skip a day of doing that could be the difference between life and death, but God commanded his people because he wanted to remind them that he was in control. He was the one that was providing for them. You can take a day off and you're still going to be okay is what he was telling them. Remember when he started putting manna from heaven and the, you know, they, they went out and some people just wanted to gather too much or they just didn't trust God was going to do it and it got worms and it just got all nasty and molded up. And I mean, that's, that's the picture. If the God of the universe who needs no sleep rested on the seventh day, we should too. Hebrews 4, 9 through 11, and we could preach a whole sermon on these 11 verses, but I'm just going to hit the tail end. It says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore, verse 11, strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And I'm not, this is not a legalistic thing. I'm not telling you you're going to hell if you don't do the Sabbath. I'm just saying, Find a day to rest. Next thing I'd say is get alone with God. One of the most amazing things to me that we can see throughout the New Testament is we see constantly in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus getting alone to commune with God. I could put 34 verses up there. I put four 
But we could put 34 verses up there of Jesus going here to pray, going here to pray. He prayed all night. He did. This is the creator of the universe coming down in human form to, to humanity, and he's still communing with God. Luke 5, 15 says, But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Matthew 14, After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Luke 6, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Some call this spiritual discipline solitude. Some call it quiet time. You can call it whatever you want to call it. The important thing is just to get alone with God. If you if a spouse, you have kids, offer to watch the kids and let her go do her thing or vice versa. Like it's just that important to find time to get alone. No electronics, no distractions. Use that time to pray. Use it to meditate on scripture. Reflect on the things has, God has done, not only for you, but just all throughout scripture. Read the Psalms and just see what God has done. Be reminded of who Jesus is and how deeply he loves you. And ultimately, these, these disciplines, they're all about abiding in Jesus. There's no crowns in heaven for spiritual disciplines. There's no extra crown for reading your Bible every day. There's no extra crown for fasting. There's no extra crown for meditating on scripture. Like the goal of all of the spiritual disciplines is to get you closer to the Father. It's to commune with who he is, to be in communion, regular relationship with him. And the spiritual disciplines are just a great way to kind of push yourself and focus yourself on who he is and the greatness of who he is. One of the last things Jesus tells his disciples, John 14, 15, 16, in the upper room, he tells them they're sitting around and he says, I want you to abide in me. And that's really what all of these things we have talked about. That's the fuel, the fire they're fueling is getting you to the point where you're just abiding daily in who Jesus is. That's, that's what it is. We have John 15 up here. John 15, it says, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. A couple things as we close. Some of you are sitting here today. You've never experienced rest. And I'm talking about the rest of placing your faith in Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burden, and I will give you rest. You've never been embraced by the arms of a loving Savior who cares for you and loves you. Right? Ancient Rome had all these crazy punishments they would do for people committed, who committed crimes. Um, some of them you, we see like the cross. I mean, they just had all these crazy ways of punishing people. And one of the things you would have to do if you were a murderer, in a lot of cases, if you were convicted of murdering somebody, you would actually, they would actually tie the corpse to you and you'd have to walk around, like live your life with that corpse being drugged behind you to show everyone else what you had done and to remind you of what you did. Can you imagine that? Some of you are carrying around the sins of your past 
just like those murderers in ancient Rome. You just, they're burdens. Like you just can't get them off of your head. You can't get them out of your mind. You're carrying them around. You're worried about the future, these worries that are on you, and they just crush you on a daily basis. And Jesus is standing here today with open arms, beckoning you to come to him and just says, I know you're tired. I know you're weary. Just come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. There's a verse in Romans 10. I use it. I love this verse. But it just says, because if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. If you've never, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, that is a perfect verse for you to just read through. And at home, or when you're here, or grab me afterwards, we'll talk through that. And just place your faith in him. Get that rest that comes with salvation. And for the rest of you who would say, yeah, I've experienced that rest, but I'm not experiencing the other rest. Like, I'm just stressed to the max. You know, for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, just, are you resting in him? Are you drinking from the living water that he provides? It sounds kind of weird to say, I'm going to do my New Year's resolution and that, but let 2019 be the year that all that changes. The year you slow down. Dear, you say, just because everybody else has to work 80 hours a week does not mean I have to work 80 hours a week. Slow down, and you just take life as God gives it to you, drinking from the living water that he provides. I read a story the other day, and I close with this. I read a story the other day about this well in an old farmhouse, set outside an old farmhouse in New Hampshire. And the well was known by all the people who lived in the town. It was known for how cold and pure the water was that came out of this well. And no matter how hot the summer was, no matter how severe the drought was, you could always count on this well to be there to quench your thirst and just to provide refreshment. All right, and the faithful old well went for, I mean, indefinitely. There for many, 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 many years. And then the 20th century came along, and wiring brought electric lights, brought indoor plumbing, brought cold and hot running water into the house, and so the well wasn't needed. So they sealed it up like they would often do back in the day and just didn't use it anymore. So one day the farmer, he's outside, and the farmer's, as we all do at times, you have this nostalgia, and you're like, man, I want some of that. Well, I remember that water I used to have. It was so cool and so refreshing and so good, and I want it so bad. So he said, I'm going to go after my work today. I'm going to go. I'm going to rip open that well. I'm going to put a bucket down, and I'm going to grab some of that fresh water. So that's what he did. He went in there and got his tools and ripped off some of the wood and then stuck his bucket down the chute and his bucket's going down and as it's going down he's getting more and more excited just can't wait to it to reach the bottom and pull up some of that water and when it got to the bottom it hit sand and dirt and I mean he, he was dumbfounded he couldn't believe it like this is the same well that through droughts through many years like how on earth could this have happened so he went around town and he's like talking to some of the older folks maybe who had been through this before hey this is what happened to my well you guys know about my well my well was awesome like it was always a source of refreshment he's like what happened what, I, don't, I don't understand what happened and they said well here's the deal as long as you draw water from the well new water flows in but when you stop using the well the water goes elsewhere 
because it's being pulled, you know, other people are pulling up water from the well. So the water just goes elsewhere. And so after time, the stream that goes to your well becomes stagnant and eventually clogs with mud. It dries up and eventually it closes and it's, com- it's pretty dry. And what's crazy to think when I, re- when I hear that story, I'm like, the well didn't dry up because it was used too much. It dried up because it wasn't used enough. And our souls, I think, are a lot like that old well. If we don't consistently draw on the living waters of Jesus, if we don't abide in him, if we don't rest in him, if we don't come close to him, our hearts tend to dry up. And I think we'd all agree with that. Our hearts just kind of dry up and they just don't feel it anymore. and It's just not there. But if we rest in him and we make an effort to rest in him, he will be there for us even on our darkest of days. And my hope and my prayer for us as a church is that as we move forward, as we eventually change and move into a new building and we kind of, the Lord just is with our church as we go forward, that we all collectively rest in him. That we encourage each other to rest in him. That we help each other rest. That we have each other over. We have conversations about Jesus. We fan the flames, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy. And we just encourage each other to keep moving. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the last three weeks in Psalm 42, 43, and Psalm 116. And then today in Matthew 11, Lord, we thank you for just the fact that you love us. That you show us mercy. Lord, when we're running 100 miles an hour and we do not focus on you, we don't even have time for you, Lord, that you still love us and you still care about us. Lord, and today we can all just look at you and say, Lord, I screwed up. Forgive me. I want to I just make 2019 a day where I rest in you. And just like the father of the prodigal son, he's waiting there with open arms. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much in your name. Amen.